my name is Matt, and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. In this episode, I'll be chatting with Brendan Jowett about housing injustice in Toronto. Brendan is a tenant lawyer at Neighborhood Legal Services, a community legal clinic serving Toronto's downtown East communities. And he has advised and represented tenants organizing with the Keep Your Rent movement. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan. Hey, Matt. So for our listeners who wouldn't otherwise know this, uh, we had actually planned to have you on the podcast about a year ago. And I think originally we would hope to discuss the housing situation in Toronto in light of the then relatively new Doug Ford government and the changes that he was making around tenants laws and, and so on. But, you know, a lot's happened since then over the last year, as we all know. So I'm wondering if we can start off, can you just give us a lay of the land? What's the housing issue like in Toronto? What was the general state of the housing question leading up to the COVID pandemic and, and how has the pandemic impacted that? Yeah, so I mean, I think it goes without saying that Toronto is in a housing crisis and has been in a housing crisis for a long time. You know, rents are skyrocketing and, and obviously people's wages and their social assistance payments, their pensions are not keeping pace with, with rents. And so it, it's becoming increasingly unaffordable as a city. I mean, in terms of where that comes from and why that is happening, I think that, I mean, there's a few drivers and a few, you know, kind of major changes that have happened over the last 20 or 30 years. One major change is that the, um, the federal government has taken much more of a backseat in terms of seeing it's, itself as having a role in providing for affordable housing. So there's been a, a serious decline in investment by the federal government in affordable housing and, and, and social housing which sort of started in the 90s and, and, and only very recently has kind of been re, rebooted a little bit under the, under the liberals. And then there's two issues that kind of go hand in hand with each other. One is um, like an increasing erosion of tenant protections uh, that started under the, the Mike Harris government and continued and was really never properly rectified by, by the, the previous liberal government. And then what kind of goes hand in hand with that is a, is a financialization of, of housing. Um, so this is, this is where, you know, housing goes not from just being a, a, an asset that's owned by, like, say, a family or a closely held corporation where, you know, they might own a couple of buildings. But housing is increasingly treated as a, a commodity and as like a financial instrument. And so we've seen in the last 20 years, like a major increase in uh, or a major rise in, in the real estate investment trust, which is basically just like a, a pool of money. And um, these are like, you know, multi-billion dollar firms that can go around and, and, and buy up buildings. Um, and then they, they apply these strategies of uh, like an, an intense increase in the profit that they, are, that they are taking out of these buildings. So these are like uh, organizations like Achilles, Starlight. What are some of the ways that they could do that? So, well, and, and actually, so this is where that kind of goes hand in hand with uh, an erosion in tenant protections. So, you know, we see, for example, the above guideline increase, which is a, a perennial issue and, and uh, like all of the rent strikes that have been happening in, in Ontario over the last five, like the last five years or so in, in, in Parkdale and in Hamilton um, and then and in other parts of Toronto as well all of those rent strikes are over above guideline increases. So this is where the landlord says, you know, we put money into the building to do capital improvements and then they off, offload that cost onto tenants. Um, currently the legislation enables, um, well, I, I guess it's, it's a little different in 2020, but, but previously 
uh, landlords were allowed to raise the rent 3% above the guideline for, for as many as three years in a row. So the, the guideline is the amount that the landlord is just, landlords are allowed to raise the rent every year. They don't need permission or, or you know, they don't need to apply for that. But you, know, you could have your rent going up 5% a year for three years in a row. That's, a, that's an increase of 15%. And again, no one's wages are going up at that rate and no one's pension payments or social assistance payments are going up at that at that rate. And then, and then, you know, when tenants move out, they do superficial renovations in the buildings and then they jack the rent up. And, you know, I mean, the rent can, could, can double depending on, on what it was charged previously and what the market will bear. So yeah, I've heard the term rent evictions. Yeah. So uh, like a rent a rent eviction is, is a little different than an above guideline increase, but I guess you could think of it in the same way. Like this is where uh, a landlord serves a tenant with a notice that says we we want to renovate your unit and, and you have to be out of it in order for us to to do those those renovations and then they renovate and then they flip it over and they, they rent it out at a much higher uh, at a much higher rent um, I, I think above guideline increases are effectively a form of rent eviction because they can just render your housing so inaffordable that you have no choice but to move and, and obviously all of this takes place like in a broader context it takes place with with wage stagnation, with you know low social assistance payments, payments, and then also just you know you can't talk about poverty without talking about racism and, and the racialization of poverty as well. And so obviously, like all of these things affect communities of color disproportionately. Right. And so I mean, I guess it's fair to say that a year ago, when we had originally planned to do this podcast, it was already fair then to talk about a housing crisis in Toronto. Have things gotten worse? How have how bad have things gotten during the pandemic? I guess I'm, I imagine that they've gotten much worse. Yeah, the pandemic has just intensified the the struggles that people are facing uh, in, in in housing. So, like one area where uh, that the pandemic had a major impact on people, and and keep in mind that like the central public health strategy for getting through the pandemic is staying at home. You know, and so so like this idea of home and housing becomes crucial to to the pandemic. Um, or to, to our, our response to it. Um, and so like one of the things that happened is, I mean, there's a huge amount of hidden homelessness as well, right? These are people who, who might be couch surfing or they um, are, you know, stay, they stay with, with friends or family for a few days at a time and, and kind of go from place to place. But suddenly when you're told like you have to stay in one place and you have to stay there all the time and nothing is open, none of the places that you would normally go or that, you know, the, the people that you would normally see None of those are available. And so there's a huge number of people that who were in that kind of precarious housing situation or hidden homelessness to begin with and were no longer able to maintain that solution. And so like a lot of the people that you see living in, in encampments, uh, homeless encampments in the city of Toronto are folks that were in that situation of, of, of already precariously housed or, or effectively homeless, but then, you know, losing that, that minimal protection that they that they had. I mean, then obviously, there's the the issues that the pandemic has had for people being able to pay the rent. And the federal response to to the pandemic and, and the CERB, you know, which was the kind of general, uh, the, the general income assistance program that, that was created. Um, I mean, it covered people for for four months, and then, you know, it gradually kind of petered out. And you know, but but the economy has not recovered and people are not back to work in the way that they were before. And yet the landlord and tenant board is still open. They're still holding eviction hearings. People are still getting evicted. 
so there's been like very little in the way of support for people and, and, and particularly concerning is that the, the province hasn't brought in any sort of rent relief or, or anything to say, you know, that, that periods of rent would be deemed uncollectible or, or that they're going to support tenants through this tough time. They've basically been uh, business as usual, aside from the fact that the landlord and tenant board is more dysfunctional now than it has ever been. And it was already already pretty bad. Well, I was going to ask you about the provincial government uh, and its response to this, because I mean, I have heard on the news some things about temporary uh, moratoriums on evictions. So maybe you could just give us a bit of a sense of what what's actually happening there. Yeah. So, I mean, when the pandemic started, the provincial government in- instituted an eviction moratorium, which basically was an, a, like they applied for an order from from the superior court where they said that all outstanding eviction orders are, are cannot be enforced until you know such time as this order is lifted. And so that was that was in effect for the first four or five months of the pandemic. It, it was lifted on August 1st, uh, 2020. So that was, I mean, I think that was good. But I think the thing is that like saying you can't evict people right now doesn't do much to help, you know, to help people who are already paying, like in many cases, you know, 80% of their income was going towards their rent. And now they're being told, okay, you have to work out a payment plan with your with your landlord to to pay back, you know, several months that you may have been unable to pay. And so now your rent is effectively a hundred percent of your income. Mm. I mean, the landlord and tenant board, which is which is under provincial jurisdiction, is its is its own its own nightmare right now. You know, they're holding these these they're holding eviction hearings remotely. And the biggest issue, I, mean, I think something like 90% of cases that, that go to the landlord and tenant board are, are for non-payment of rent. And that was before COVID. Um, and so, you know, you're talking about people that are not able to pay for the most basic, their most basic need. And you bring them to the landlord and tenant board on, on online hearings where it's like, okay, do, do, do people have internet? Do they have phone access? Like I've heard stories of people being on, on a pay phone you know, calling into their landlord and tenant board hearing, standing outside in the rain while they're waiting for their, their landlord and tenant board matter to be heard. And, you know, there's been a lot of work from the, the, the Keep Your Rent movement and People's Defense Toronto to, to expose that. And like, I mean, the landlord and tenant board was, was never really like a, a super functional or even fair administrative body. But I think that, you know, hearings where the adjudicator is made aware that the tenant is dead, and then they they pretend that they never received that information and they issue an eviction order to the, to the tenant um, or, you know, hearings where a, a, an adjudicator was in a blatant conflict of interest, having worked at the same law firm as, as the council representing the landlord um, and, and issuing orders against tenants, you know, requiring them to pay the rent, you know, it, and, and then, and then they've uh, like the landlord and tenant board has leaned on legal clinics and said, okay, well, legal clinics, you have to, make space available for people to be able to, to log into their remote hearings. And meanwhile, like we faced cuts from the Ford government it was one of the first things that they did. And like my office had a, had a, a 10% cut. Hmm. We lost two staff members. Hmm. And now you're telling us we have to provide the infrastructure for people to be able to participate in their, in their hearings remote. While also following all the physical distancing guidelines and what have you, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you consider yourself not only a lawyer, but an activist, right? And so you, you've mentioned a couple of the activist pushback campaigns in, in the city. You mentioned Keep Your Rent Toronto, and the second one was 
there's there's the encampment support network is is another like incredible group that has has emerged in the in the wake of the pandemic and, and is meeting needs that like frankly just should be met by the city in terms of like going to encampments and providing people with water meals ppe basic sanitation supplies tents basic necessities of life and the encampment support network has has just kind of filled that that gap and it's this incredible group of volunteers and also organizers who who have been, you know, it, simultaneously with their support of people who are living in encampments, they're also making demands of of governments and particularly of the city to address the the, the housing and homelessness crisis. And and you know, this is like the, the rise of homeless encampments is the predictable result of allowing a, a allowing a, home, a housing crisis to fester. And then when you know when the uh, you know when shit hits the fan and, and the pandemic came down, it's like, no one should be surprised that we saw 10,000 homeless people a day and then, you know, a thousand plus choosing to sleep rough outside because, you know, shelters are so challenging to, to live in. Right. So you were involved in supporting a legal court case in defense of the people who were sleeping in, in the camp, correct? Yeah, so we we represented a group of 14 uh, homeless individuals that were staying in parks across the city, as well as two public interest organizations, uh, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty and the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society. And so we brought a, um, I I mean, the city initially took the stance that they were not going to clear homeless encampments at the start of the pandemic. Uh, and then they they began to increasingly kind of put pressure on on encampments and and uh, by I mean even by May they were showing up at, at encampments with bulldozers and and trucks to to cart people's gear off and you know there's this under the, what pretext uh, it would be so it, it would depend on where they were so like they would use like they would use parks bylaw infractions for for people that were staying in parks they would use uh, like streets. And, and roads uh, provisions for people that were like camped on boulevards and like under, under the gardener, you know, I mean, it was under the pretext that, you know, these encampments are not safe and that, you know, it's like, it's safer for people to be inside. And like, I mean, encampments are not the solution to the homelessness problem. And, and, and you know, it's not like, I mean, no one is saying that the ideal situation is that people are able to camp, like people are camped in parks as their housing solution. But people have many different reasons for choosing to to stay in a park or, or, or in, in a public space. Uh, it, it might be that they find shelters very inst- they're very, very institutional. Um, like a lot of folks that have you know if you've spent time in, in prison, then being in a shelter is is um, can be quite triggering. Um, many people find the rules to be very paternalistic. Uh, there 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 may be like abstinence requirements in some of the shelters. Other people might find drug use uh, to be quite triggering for them as well if they have have uh, dealt with addiction. Uh, people get you know people get robbed and they get their stuff stolen in shelters all the time, uh, and so you know like shelters don't work for everybody. And 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 I think there's a sense of there's a sense of like there's a real sense of community that emerged for a lot of people who were staying in parks where you know they were cleaning the parks together and they had their own kind of governance structures and. They were they were supporting each other, and there was an incredible sense of kind of mutual aid that, that came out through all of that. And I think that people found it empowering to be in that 
that situation. And, and meanwhile, the city started to increase pressure on people to, to push them out. And so in, uh, in July, they issued a notice saying that they needed to like clear property and belongings from the, uh, from the park, but they didn't give them enough time under that relevant bylaw. They had to give them 72 hours notice and they only gave them 24 hours. And so like we were able to push back against that. And then they set out a no trespass notice, which, which is the tactic that they used to disband the Occupy movement from, uh, mm-hmm. from St. James Park. So, they, so they, shifted, they shifted tactics. And so we brought a challenge under the charter to that trespass notice saying that it infringed people's rights to life, liberty, and security of the person and that it also infringed their, uh, their equality rights under the charter. So we brought that application to, to basically invalidate the, the parks bylaw. And, and that was based on work that's been done out in BC. I mean, there's a, there's a, a, a long history of tent city advocacy and uh, organizing around encampments in, in, uh, in BC. And, and you know, most of the case law relates to, to public parks. And so we kind of fashioned our challenge to, you know, on, uh, on those previous cases. And then we brought a, an injunction to stop the city from clearing encampments while, uh, while the case was argued. And so that injunction was, was heard in October and the result came on, I think about October 23rd, uh, where our injunction request was denied. But, you know, I mean, I think that there are like one important thing in terms of like movement, movement lawyering and working with movements is that it's, it's not necessarily just about winning cases, but it's, it's about, you know, giving people things to organize around and giving people time. You know, I mean, like, I mean, the fact is that in, in, in July, the city was saying that they were going to clear the encampment at Moss Park and the people are still there. Um, it gave them, you know, they gave them time to organize uh, and it gave them, it gave them some like kind of concrete things to, to organize around. But, you know, I mean, the legal strategy or the legal piece of that was just a small, uh, just a small part, you know, and the, the bigger part is the, the on the ground organizing of groups like the encampment support network or the overdose prevention society, which is, which is advocating for actual solutions for, for affordable housing. And they had an action where they stopped outside the, the, the we charity uh, buildings on uh, at queen and parliament, which is actually ironically where my office used to be located. And we got, we got evicted by we, but they, you know, they, uh, you know, broadcasting, uh, uh, or I should say rather projecting an image onto those buildings saying this should be housing and, and really highlighting how gentrification and, and decades of, of bad policy decisions have led to this crisis. I mean, homelessness is a policy decision. It is not, as is often framed, uh, you know, a sad reality, which I, be, I believe that the judge in our case referred to homelessness as a, as a sad reality. I mean, it's not a sad right. reality. It is the consequence of policy decisions. Right. I mean, it seems to me like some of the policy decisions that we could be make that we could be making are simple. I mean, there's billionaires in this city, and I think as long as there are billionaires, there should be nobody who's homeless. Correct. It seems. I mean, I I also think there should not be billionaires. Yeah, I mean, it just seems so simple. This is so that's what's so frustrating about this is that the solutions are, are seem to be so easy and well known. I mean, there's a housing crisis. Well, build more housing. Yeah. And, and again, like, so, I mean, I think that like, there's a real fetishization in, in North America around home ownership. And it's been like, I mean, it kind of seems like the liberal, the liberal party of Canada's like 
bread and butter is like everyone should be able to own a home. And the, when they talk about like middle class, I think they're talking about home ownership largely, uh, or the home ownership is like a defining feature of the middle class. And I, I mean, I'm not, I don't necessarily fetishize home ownership, but like there are places where being a renter is not the, you know, ex- it doesn't create the kind of excruciating uncertainty that we have here in Toronto. Like in, you know, in, in uh, Vienna, which people often talk about, there's a, a huge amount of the housing stock in that city is social housing. And you have like, quote unquote, middle, middle class people that live in publicly owned housing. And like, that's a, that's a solution. You know, that's definitely a solution. And, and it's just that you, you have to, you have to have a plan and you have to fund it and, you know, make sure that they have the resources they need. I mean, like you could, you could easily criticize social housing in, in Toronto and in Canada, when you look at like Toronto community housing and the state of repair of some of those buildings, but like they just need, they need money. Right. And, and this is a problem that, you know, I, when I was saying that the, the federal government has kind of left its role of, of providing for affordable housing, you know, that, that it was, it was first downloaded onto provinces who then downloaded it onto municipalities and, and the taxation powers of municipalities are so limited. And in fact, when they raise, you know, really it's property taxes, the main way that they, that they get revenue. But if you raise property taxes, then that actually disproportionately affects tenants as well, because it means that rents are going up. So just by, by offloading itself of that responsibility and put, foisting it all onto municipalities, you've, you've created like Toronto Community Housing, which is grossly underfunded and just not able to do the things that they, they should be able to do. But in some, you know, the buildings that they have that are good buildings, you know, people are happy. People have good, you know, they've got good situations and there's a combination. Some people pay market rent. Some people pay, pay rent geared to income. And, you know, like things, things can be okay in, in social housing buildings. You just have to make sure that they're, they're properly maintained and that the tenants have the supports that they need. So, you know, people that, um, yeah, that might have struggles in terms of, uh, of their living situation have the supports that they need to. I'm glad that you, that you tacked on that word public housing to it because, I mean, what I said before that could easily be taken as I'm kind of a shill for the development industry. And we all know that they don't need any more shills. They got a lot of shills. They got a lot of shills. Yeah, yeah. So you've also been involved with Keep Your Rent Toronto. So you've been advising Keep Your Rent Toronto. What is Keep Your Rent Toronto? So I, I mean, I, 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 like Keep Your Rent Toronto is, I, I wouldn't even, call, I wouldn't call Keep Your Rent Toronto like an organization. I would say it's more of a movement. And, and there are organizations that have kind of developed around that. So like various, so for example, um, there's a, there's a, one of these real estate investment trusts, uh, Timber Creek Asset Management, which is recently rebranded uh, as Hazelview, I believe, uh, after, you know, after like incredible efforts by tenants and, and just like people just showing how vicious and, and horrible this, uh, this, this company was and, you know, doing displacing people for, for many years. Um, but, uh, but so like, I mean, Keep Your Rent Toronto is basically a movement that formed at the start of the pandemic of people saying, look, we're going to have costs for medication, for food, for, you know, possibly for transportation. And, and we've lost our jobs. And the, the money that we have that's coming in should not be going to landlords. Uh, and so it was kind of a, a, a movement that emerged as a, a kind of broad um, decentralized rent strike that was, uh, that was you know, working to, to, to galvanize tenants in certain areas and, and you know, connect tenants with their neighbors and uh, within their community to, to organize, uh, to push for 
at least to negotiate or to force landlords to negotiate fair terms and, and in particular some form of rent forgiveness. So, you know, People's Defense Toronto, for example, has, has done a lot of work to, to help support people. And there's tons of organizing in, in Parkdale and then various landlords that have, you know, like different tenant unions that have, have either developed or become strengthened through all of this. But yeah, the basic idea is that like working class people, period, have been the ones that have shouldered the, the pain of the pandemic. And for landlords and particularly for these you know, multi-billion dollar real estate investment trusts to insist that they shouldn't lose a dime, they shouldn't have to spend any money you know, as a result of the pandemic and shouldn't have to you know, carry any of that burden, I think is just, is just absurd. And, and so, you know, tenants are pointing that out. And, and, you know, I think that they've had a lot of success in, in being able to, to fight that and to try and force landlords to, to negotiate. So I've represented people who, uh, who were like, for example, like locked out of their, their unit or like where the landlord had, uh, had, had obtained eviction orders and in, enforce them with like no notice to the tenant, this particular person that I'm thinking of. Uh, like she woke to the knock on the door from the sheriff who was there to change her locks and evict her. And so we like worked on getting people back into their units, preventing evictions. How do you do that? What kind of tactics do you employ to ensure that someone doesn't get evicted? Well, I mean, so this is where, you know, I, as a, as a lawyer, I kind of try, I try to find line, right? Uh, I mean, I, I have obligations to the, the, through the law society. Like I can't like encourage or promote uh, unlawful conduct or anything like that. And, you don't. You certainly the law, don't. and I never would. Um, but there are some, there, there are stories of tenants that, for example, blockaded the sheriff's, uh, the sheriff's vans and prevented them from being able to go out to carry out evictions on, on uh, particular days. And there's stories of tenants like occupying units and refusing to allow someone to be evicted. Uh, or, or preventing the sheriff from entering, uh, from entering a building to, to carry out an eviction. So, you know, and this kind of like militant tenant action is, is not something that I had seen before, like direct, like direct action of like blocking evictions. Like I hadn't seen that previously. I'd seen tenants go on red strike and, and that sort of thing, but I hadn't seen that sort of direct. Uh, Do you find that, you s- that you're seeing uh, more militancy in... I don't know, certain types of buildings. I mean, I was living in a very large building in Toronto at the beginning of the pandemic. And full disclosure, Keep Your Rent Toronto did try to get something going in our building. But I I don't know. I mean, I I left before it really got off the ground, but it was also a very large building and I was thinking about all the obstacles. So I'm wondering, what do you think are the the kind of the conditions that allow for a militancy to emerge more easily? If there are any. Yeah. I mean, where, where we've seen it, where we've seen it arise is in, again, in these like real estate investment trusts. And so it's these, it's, it's where you have landlords that have like multiple buildings and where these patterns emerge across buildings where like they just, they do the same thing. They carry out the same tactics. And I mean, like ultimately organizing is about forming communities of interest and then fighting collectively to advance those interests. And when you have a landlord that, um, for example, like Metcap in, in Parkdale, a landlord that comes into the, the neighborhood, buys up a bunch of buildings, does this like really disruptive construction uh, it, you know, throughout, throughout all of the buildings, and then starts jacking people's rents up through above guideline increases. 
you know, it's when you see that kind of, and, and an entire neighborhood was moved by that to, to, to organize. Um, I think that, yeah, like, I think there's a stronger community of interest that forms around, yeah, around like larger scale landlords. I mean, the, so there's this mythology around like the mom and pop landlord and, 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 you know, a lot of the, the rules under the residential tenancies act are kind of like, reflect this idea that like landlords are just, you know, small businesses or like a family that maybe owns a building or two or just rents out like the, their basement unit and that kind of thing. But you could, you could almost liken that to the work that the agricultural industry has done to like paint the image of the family farm. And that by like bringing in worker protections, you're, you're eviscerating mom and pop farming operations. And it's kind of the same thing, you know, like it's, it's these huge landlords that attract the, the tenants that, that come together and just say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to stand for this. We're not going to take it anymore. And, and I, I really, I think that it's when people, you know, I think people are moved by like tangible, uh, like a tangible issue. You know, they're not just moved. They're not just like moved by like, oh, we have a general interest in housing policy. They're moved by like every dollar that I pay to my landlord is a dollar that is not going to put food on my table. Right. And so I think that's where, and then it's just like, yeah, when landlords are particularly egregious, um, you know, Achilles, for example, that came in and, and, you know, every building they bought up, they kicked out the live-in superintendent. They started the, you know, no one could get maintenance stuff done. They started these construction projects. It, it just, it, it's those material, uh, those material insults that, that people experience when they, that, that brings them together and they say, we're not taking this anymore and, and that pushes them to action. Right. I wonder how much sort of pre-existing community ties within the building helps here too. Because I mean, from my own building, I felt like I, I knew maybe three or four people and I didn't even know them that well. So the idea of going to them, knocking on their door, these, you know, these people that I'd never met before and saying, hey, do you want to do a rent strike? It's a little... I don't know. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I think that, and I, I think that this is like one of the things that makes housing particularly difficult to organize around, which is that like, what's like the ultimate kind of like expression of your like, like liberal individual identity is, is your own home. You, we have this kind of like artificial divide between like our, our, like our work life and our personal life. And your personal life is kind of like when you walk through the door of your, your unit or your home, and you're in this kind of like sanctuary that's like a, your, your, your place. And I think that a lot of people, like, whereas maybe a shop floor is a different place. It's a different environment to, to be organizing. Um, I think it can be really hard to get, to have those conversations uh, and, and for tenants to like see themselves as having a community of interest. Because like, ultimately at the end of the day, do most people want to like, get home after a, a, a long day's work and then go knocking on doors in their building? Or do they want to just like, like, rela- like relax and be and with their the family? Right. Yes, exactly. They're like, yeah, just do their, do things that are, are regenerative and, and, you know. Not to mention the fear, the fear of um, withholding your rent and knowing what can come, the consequences that can come of that. Yeah. And that's where like a, a big, I think a big role for lawyers in, you know, giving advice to, to people that are considering militant action is, is that like helping people understand like, what are the actual risks, right? Like, okay. The basic line is that you have to pay your rent. You're legally obliged to pay your rent. But if you don't, you know, the landlord, if they want to evict you, they have to serve you with this type of notice. You know, it gives you, it gives you a certain amount of time to pay and stay 
if you don't, then they have to apply to the landlord and tenant board and, and get an order. So, you know, there's like understanding how the process works and what the, what the actual risks are is, you know, is, is a, there's a role for, for lawyers to play in that and making sure that people, that people know and then defending them, you know, when, when things get right, when things get tough. I keep kind of going back and forth on this though, because I, I recall reading stories from the, the great depression, 1930s, you know, and the mere threat that your neighbor was going to be evicted would result in, you know, the congregation of a hundred people outside of the apartment saying, no, this person is not leaving, you know, sheriff's at the door, but a hundred people show up. It seems like that kind of, that kind of militancy is just so, it just doesn't exist anymore. I, I don't want to agree with you, but I, I, I think that it's, the conditions are just different, right? Like it, I mean, the, the certainly, like there's a lot of talk about, about how like movements have been like very, very slowly kind of picked apart and, 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 you know, I mean, there's, and there's kind of like a, a sweet spot that maybe they, they, they reach where, you know, who has the quote? It's like that find the Frederick, I think it's Frederick Douglass or like find the, uh, like the extent to which someone will tolerate injustice. And that is like, that is how far injustice will go. Right. And, and I think that they found a place where it's like, you know, even for, for a lot of people, like, you know, they, 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 they still have a place to live. And, you know, the, the rent going up by $40 a month, is that enough to stir you to action? If it goes to, if it goes up to $60 a month, is that enough to stir you to action? And it's like, it's, and it's finding that, that point at which things are just become unbearable for people you know, people really are getting to a point where they're saying like, if, if my rent goes up, I can't pay it and I'll have to move. And if I move, I won't be able to stay in the same community, let alone the same city that I maybe have grown up in. I mean, it could have lived here my entire life that my kids, you know, my kids go to school or whatever it might be. So, you know, I think that we're getting to that breaking point increasingly and we haven't seen that kind of militancy for a long time, but we are seeing it now. Exciting. Uh, so how would, you, how would you evaluate the effectiveness or how would you rate the effectiveness of some of these movements so far? How, how much of a um, shift have we seen from governments or from landlords or from you know, the targets of these campaigns so far? And are there any lessons that we should be taking from this? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm in a position of advising tenants as to like the, the legal system and how the legal system works like all the time. And what I say to them is that the legal system is not the end of it. And, and it's, not the only, it's not the only tactic by a long shot that, that can be used or the only forum where justice can be uh, attained. And in fact, in many ways, the legal system is set, it's stacked against tenants. You know, again, with like above guideline increases, this isn't just a, like a matter of like, oh, there are bad, like, judges make bad decisions. It's a matter of like the law allows this to happen. The law structures this, um, this kind of ex extraction of profit from, from tenants. So, you know, like the law and justice are different things. And I think that, you know, I think that these sorts of the kind of direct action that we've seen and the kind of work that we have seen uh, people like organizing around I mean, for example, the rent strikes in, in, in Parkdale, like they successfully beat back. There, there are at least two examples of, of above guideline increases being withdrawn. 
which never would have happened if they hadn't organized and if they had gone to the board, because if, if they had gone to the landlord and tenant board, they would have definitely gotten an order that says, this is the percentage that your rent is going up. So, you know, with, in terms of like the organizing around COVID, like I think that firstly, lots of people have, have not been evicted because they've been organized and they've been defended by, by their neighbors. Um, there's been a lot of like mutual aid that's also emerged out of this. Like there's, there's stories of, uh, of uh, tenants taking over a unit in a, a Timber Creek or Hazelview uh, building in, in, on West Lodge and starting a food bank in a, in a unit. Yeah. And like people just like kind of helping, like helping meet, meet each other's needs. So yeah, like I think that there's like an incredible community building uh, that, that comes with that. I think that there is a, a kind of working class consciousness that has emerged where people see, you know, they see the, the, what their, their, their neighbors are facing and they, they see themselves in that and they see the injustice of people being evicted because they can't pay their rent, you know, when they haven't been able to work for six months or if they, you know, if they don't have status or, you know, for whatever reason, they don't, they don't qualify for, for certain social assistance payments. So yeah, it's built consciousness. It's had material benefits of preventing evictions. It, there are cases where uh, landlords have been forced to negotiate with tenants to, to, to implement like rent relief plans for people who are, who are in need. And then in terms of like, for example, like the, the encampment organizing, like, I think that that has like the fact that people are still in encampments. I mean, that is a, that is a shame on, on this, this country uh, and the city that, that people are still living in encampments, but where it's people exercising the best choices that, that they can make for themselves and exercising their agency. um, You know, they've, effectively been able to stay because they've controlled the narrative around what the encampments are. And, you know, there's, there's the, the tiny shelter um, work that's been going on where, where someone has, someone has built these like small kind of more slightly more stable structures, like better, like better than tents um, that are insulated and, and, uh, and warm for people to, to stay in over the winter. And that has been, would not have been possible if it hadn't been for all the organizing that had taken place prior to that. And, and, and now the city is thinking twice before coming in and clearing people out. So people are still, you know, like people are still at Moss park. They're still at, at, you know, Trinity Bellwoods and, and Alexander park. Like they're, you know, yeah. they've managed to hang on because they're, because they've organized. Yeah. And I, I love that going back a bit. I love that idea of the food bank, within the building. So did they kind of occupy a, a, a unit, not pay rent? And yeah, I don't know all the, I don't know all the details of it, but, but like, I do know that there was a unit that was effectively like taken over by tenants in, in, uh, it would be worth looking into to get the details if there are tenants that are, that are interested in organizing in that way. Um, yeah, you know, it's like, like the, the needs, uh, uh, you know, this isn't just housing, right? It's not just a housing crisis. It's a, it's a crisis of, of, of capitalism, it's a crisis of of poverty and, and neoliberalism. So it's you know the, the the responses have been multifaceted, right? So maybe as just to wrap things up here, I'm wondering for our listeners you know, who might be interested in getting involved in housing activism in Toronto or even elsewhere, what what advice would you give them? Um, like I would say that the place to start is by talking to your neighbors. And, and it's, you know, I mean, I, I understand that like with the pandemic, um, that makes things hard. You know, you can't have those kind of face-to-face meetings. I would, I would dissuade people from just having like, having like just a Facebook group, unless you're really using it effectively. But like, 
th those can very easily just devolve into into places for people to post their their personalized complaints. But I think that like really what you want to do is work together with your neighbors to identify what are our shared issues? What are the common things, patterns that we're seeing that, that all of us are facing? And, um, you know, you, you like with any, with any meeting with a group of tenants, you're going to have, you know, a bunch of people that come in with a bunch of different concerns or a bunch of things that are going on for them. And it's really important to like, to be able to, if to the extent that you can, to set aside some of those personal grievances and identify what are the things that all of us share. Maybe it's not the most important thing to me, but, it, but if it is an important thing to me, then, you know, then you've got it, you've got a common, a common interest there. And then, you know, and then you can talk to more experienced organizers and the, the um, keep your rent folks are totally open to talking to, to tenant organizers you know, and, and that they're not necessarily going to say, you know, rent strike is the only way, but, you know, they can give you some ideas about how to organize with, with your neighbors. Yeah, you know, there's weak, there's weak forms of organizing and there's strong forms of organizing. And, you know, strong organizing comes from people who have relationships with each other, who, you know, are vested in one another's well-being and, and uh, in, in each other's circumstances. And so I, I'd say that the place to start is with your neighbors. Great. Thanks so much for being here, Brendan. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Oats for Breakfast. Remember that you can subscribe to us on any podcast app of your choice, including iTunes, Spotify, and Podcast Addict. Also remember that you can support us by going to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you again soon. Smash that subscribe button.